Welcome to episode 103 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Alleggi. And I'm Peter Lim, and our very special guest today is artist Sam Jury, whose recent multi-channel video and sound installation, To Be Here, is currently on view at the Michigan State University Broad Art Museum. A British artist and filmmaker, her cinematic vignettes depict Saharawi people living in a refugee camp in the western Algerian desert. Since 2008, her work has focused on psychological impacts of the photographic and moving image and how the ubiquity of mass media shapes our understanding of self and societies. A second installation also showing uh, around different locations on campus and the city of East Lansing is to be here without a short video inspired by conversations with Sahari women and framed by excerpts from Ben Rawlins's book, City of Thorns, that encapsulate the psychological stasis of living as a refugee. And keep listening after our conversation with Sam Jury for additional context on Western Sahara with Richard Knight. Welcome. Thank you, Peter. Uh, could we start uh, by you please telling us a little bit about the place and the people? The place is, um, there's five refugee camps on the western border of Algeria in the middle of, of the Sahara Desert. It's probably one of the most hostile places you can imagine. And the camps have been there for over 40 years now. Depending on what statistics you look at, the population is in excess of 96,000 people. And the people are the Sahrawi people, and they were displaced um, in 1975 during the Western Sahara War, where Morocco annexed the Western Sahara region, the, the Sahrawi people's homeland. And your, your very striking, uh, empathetic video art gets to the heart of one of the world's longest running, as you've mentioned, and often forgotten uh, refugee encampments and, and presents these vignettes uh, of what the exhibit calls the suspended trauma of displacement in Western Sahara. And later today, you will actually give the Eye on Africa seminar here and screen a version of, of, of your film. Can you talk uh, a little about the experience of making an artwork in a refugee camp as an outsider? Yeah, I mean, it, originally I, I wasn't going to um, undertake this, um, this project. I was invited to go by an a Spanish organisation called Arti Feriti, who do cultural activities in the camps yearly. And the reason that I wasn't intending to um, take on the project is because I felt really... I felt quite uncomfortable about it as being an outsider coming into a camp and having just two weeks to think that I could possibly say something meaningful about a situation that, as you say, has been going on for one of the longest protracted periods of refugee situations. I decided in the end, to cut a long story short, um, to do it. I, I was persuaded by the curator, but I also felt that it would probably be more cowardly not to do it somehow. And so I, I did. I did go. I when and when I arrived, what I realised first of all is that I didn't know anything. So I think that that to me, at least, that said something. To know that you don't know, um, at least, was something I think I, I wanted to harness. 
So I spent the first week there um, interviewing people and speaking to people. What I should mention here is that I was living with a local family and I was very lucky with the family that I was with. I got on very well with them. They had a great sense of humour and they were very supportive of of what I wanted to do in terms of making a film. And they were kind of the fixers for the film, actually, and, and made sure that we got everything that we needed um, you know, to make the films. But as I said, the first week, pretty much, I was interviewing people there. Most of those people were women, um, just to, just really because of how the, the, the culture is set up and, and where I was staying. And what transpired from those conversations is the journey that the women undertook during the original displacement in 1975. As you will imagine, um, the, the women were the people who um, who fled initially the men were fighting and so they they found themselves in the desert and they had to build everything from scratch so what what transpired I think from those conversations the story of the women um, and also some really striking visual vignettes about how people keep cool in the sun and, and some of the the daily the daily routines that people have, staying out of the sun, keeping cool. And, and I think they, they give a, a sort of a visual or a filmic synect, synecdoche or a, a metaphor to show how difficult it is to, to do things when you're in such harsh environments. So that's how I try to structure the films. And maybe we can, uh, all three of us in a way, we can sketch some of these visual images as we as we go through mm. the conversation um, because we are in fact talking about visual uh, expression. And I was wondering uh, in this regard why you chose uh, particular scenes, uh, particular visual sequences. And, and on our website we will link to various snapshots uh, but in due course, we encourage the listeners to to try and uh, view the the videos. Uh, but I mean, to me, some of the memorable uh, sequences were the uh, the women lying down in the camp buildings, trying to work out what was actually going on. In in some cases, there the very uh, evocative images also of of what appears in, in one of... Because there are two... We're dealing with two films here, two short films. And in one of them, there are these sequences of a convoy of cars moving across the desert. Another is a rather mysterious pile or, or, or hump of what appear to be carcasses or, or something like this. So these are some of the images, light and dark. In the To Be Here... Uh, video and sound installation, there is really a great play with light and dark in the buildings that have been constructed. So maybe you could just speak uh, around these questions of choice. You as the artist, why these particular sequences and and where exactly are we in these sequences? Well, I, I really like how you refer to the two different um, pieces of work as light and dark because well, it's obvious now I think about it, but I, I hadn't actually quite described them that way. I've been referring to them as to be here within, which are, the, the as you mentioned, the, the quite dark pieces that show the interior of the camp. And then the without video work, which is the, the, the very sort of stark, um, harsh er areas of the exterior of the camp. You mentioned the, the piece of work, uh, the, the image of the women lying down. 
And that's an example of discussing with the people, and in this case, particularly the women, how do you stay cool? And they they described how during Ramadan, if they can't drink during the hours and eat during the hours of daylight, what they do is they, or some of the women do, they soak their scarves in some water and they, they repose and they put the scarf over their faces as a kind of very rudimentary air conditioning. You know, they breathe in the moisture and they relax that way. And it was a really striking image for me um, to imagine that um, that scene. So I I collected quite a lot of those those scenes for the within piece of work. And I then, with the support of the, the, the people around me, the local people, and particularly the family and also the translator I was working with, I kind of um, restaged those scenes. So the the piece that you see where the women are lying down, there's three women lying down on on the floor on the on the carpet of the of the house. I staged that in collaboration with the women there. I think what I wanted to do with that piece is I I, I wanted to try to be a little bit mischievous with our perceptions of Muslim women um, and the idea of these. Um, interiors that we sometimes see in other contexts. For instance, we might see them in the news where people are seeing like army seals, uh, you know, bursting into people's houses and following these corridors and these spaces and they come across a room and, and quite often you see the women first in these rooms. And I, and I wanted to I wanted to sort of twist that, that reading a little bit. So you, you, you follow the camera through the house and it's, it, there's quite a psychological tension building up there as you go through the corridor and you, you, turn the, you turn the corner and you hear the TV and you hear the music and there are three women lying there with their faces covered. And picking up on that as well, the idea of the covering of the face is a very sort of stereotypical mm. idea of a, of a Muslim woman and that's a lot in the news now about... The idea of you know the the right to wear certain dress and to wear the veil, and so I also wanted to first of all present a, almost a, an image that one might expect, and of course the women potentially might look like they're dead, had they're lying there, and just as the scene bleaches out to white, one of the women puts her hand up to pull the pull the scarf down. So um, that that was one one piece that you mentioned in the exterior video work the the mounds i don't know what they were actually i when when i was a, when i was allowed to sneak off um and and go off on my own which was quite difficult in in the camps because it is it isn't just a a harsh environment it, it it's politically sensitive mm. as well when i when i did manage to to sneak off um and go outside of the area of the camp there were various things there's there's a lot of litter and that kind of thing but there were these mounds that looked to me like they were made of the carcasses of camels. And my educated guess would be to say that um, quite often families get gifted um, a camel or some kind of animal for Eid, and the, can the animals are, uh, are killed during Eid, and then they're stripped down. Um, pretty much all the meat is used, as you would imagine, and that these are the carcasses of camels. At least in my video file, when I when I was keeping it in the archive, I called it camel mounds. So, um, and I just found them, I found them very intriguing, and they were, they were scattered all around. They almost looked like they were scattered by design, and so I took a very short clip of of just those mounds, and approaching those mounds, but I also thought metaphorically they showed 
they show the harshness of the desert. They're like a pinpoint. You know, as, uh, as, as English painters used to put little people in there, Constable will put little people in his paintings. These camel mounds seem to give a sense of some kind of scale. So, Your eye is drawn to these mounds and then you start thinking, what on earth is it? Uh, so it's quite intriguing in that regard. Yeah, I found them very intriguing. And also the text that goes along with those um, that, that clip is talking about how the women when they fled from the camp they had to they were separated from their family and co and quite often that might have meant that they left children behind and that the children disappeared and so we're, we're describing a, a flee a fleeing from war and so these camel mounds or these these carcasses have a, a visual cure a, a visual association i think with with death and 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 discarding and and the, and the traces of something. So without being didactic and trying to explain something, which I think was incredibly hard to do with this film, I'm using quotes from the women, I didn't want to be then explaining these quotes because I think they're emotive in their own, in their own way, um, but to give some visual cues to the viewer of, of really what this environment is and what this environment means and how you might go to that environment and actually have to start and build, build an environment from nothing. And the women did that. They, they even made the bricks and they, they made everything that was there pretty much. And I like the way you played with time in the, um, the film with the convoy of cars and some of the landscape shots that you had. Um, how did you decide to handle the issue of time? These are camps that have been there now four decades and life in a kind of total institution uh, is a very, very painful a difficult uh, existence and you kind of lose a sense of time in a sense you're you're almost serving a sentence if you will in these in these refugee camps for the older people especially uh, it affects the younger people too because that's all they know mm. essentially so you as a filmmaker how did you uh, handle the issue the the question of time and and do you feel like you were pleased with the outcome or would you have done something differently? Because that's something very, very, very challenging to convey to a, a viewer. Yeah, I think artists always want to do things better and differently. Um, I, I do think that the, the work has had, I think it creates quite an emotive response in people. And at least that's my, the feedback I've been getting. And I've been getting that feedback from, from a range of, of different people. For instance, last night the Red Cross held an event at the Broad Art Museum and so there was a, a range of people there and, and, and people seemed to be quite emotional about, about the work and, and to be able to, to empathise, which, which was really one of the goals of the work. Um, you asked about time. I think with the Within piece, the female translator who narrates the work and narrates with the alongside the image I think she she sums it up perfectly she talks about the fact that things haven't changed for over 37 years she talks about the narrative that the older generation have about returning to the homeland and that the younger people are struggling to have that same image so I think she really encapsulates the the idea of, of what it means to not have a view of a future and I think that's something that we can all imagine somehow, or at least try to imagine what that would be like. In terms of the visual with that piece, when the female translator talks, all the images are static, and the camera is, is at a very low angle, it's sitting on the floor. 
So you see the, the expanse of the floor and the corridors and you see the, the underside of the women's feet as they're lying down. And I think actually for, for viewers, in my experience, an image that doesn't move can be quite challenging. And I, and I wanted to give that sense of things not moving. It's quite a simple device, I suppose. But I also wanted them to listen to what she was saying. And when she finishes talking, her last words are, how long do we have to wait here? And then the image, the cameras lift up and they move through the space. So I'm hoping that that is, a, is the, the last sort of thought that, that people consider as, as, the, as, the, as then they get exposed to more of the space. You mentioned with uh, the exterior film, without the, the coaches and the, the cars traveling across the desert, I like that scene. There's a, there's a tiny little bit of humour in that because you've got this very sort of municipal bus trundling Looks across the desert. Looks like it could be desert. at any airport. Yeah, and I have some quite wonderful shots of it appearing from, from, the, you know, from, the, from the haze, the heat haze. Because wait, you, you drive and drive and drive across the desert yes. and you never see anything. And so I, I think that, again, it's a fairly simple device to show you the expanse of, of, the, of the desert there. And also the, the contradiction, I think, between the first shot that you see, you, you see the camp rolling past and it, it looks, it hasn't changed for 40 years, so it does look very rudimentary, it does look um, very temporary, it looks very alien to, to people who've never seen that kind of thing. And then to have a clip where you have, well, the bus, but then you also have some fairly modern four-wheel drives there um I, I i sort of wanted that that is a temporal shift as well you have new vehicles and then you have these very old um, environments i was quite surprised when i was there that people have things like mobile phones and televisions and i realized that's my own stupidity of course they do you know but i think for someone who for an audience who've, who've never been to a place like that you have various assumptions so i, I wanted to I wanted to sort of expose those those assumptions a little bit and, and give a sort of a bigger breadth, I suppose, of, of the, the different um, layers of, of existence that happen in the camps. And refugees have been very much in the uh, news and the public focus lately, uh, internationally. Uh, and this week during your visit to Michigan State, uh, Ben Rollins, author of City of Thorns on the uh, camp in Kenya, he calls it, you know, uh, lar world's largest refugee camp of mostly Somalis, also appeared on the podcast back in February, I think. Um, you have some used some of his text from the book City of Thorns very nicely in To Be Here. Uh, how did you bring together text and image? I read City of Thorns, first of all, and I'd started a conversation with Ben that was a that was some kind of serendipity actually because Ben happened to be coming here at the same time as me. It was just by chance. It's not a British invasion or anything like that. And uh, the One Book One community were quite excited by the, the sort of potential connectivity in terms of of the idea of displacement and refugees. So Ben and I connected um, via Skype. Actually, we both live in the UK. We weren't very near to each other. And I read the book, and as I was reading the book, I, I realised it's a com completely different situation. And I think the, the danger there would be to try to say, okay, all refugees are the same, 
you know, all all forms of displacement the same, all Africans the same, or how you might want to see it. There was a danger of that, and I, and and that was a concern for me. So what I, what I did actually, as I was reading the book, is I pulled out sections of the book that I thought spoke to a universal idea of what it might mean to be in stasis, to have an uncertain future, um, to be displaced. Because I actually think that that's something that we're all closer to than we might like to think. That we might we might end up in situations where we might find ourselves homeless, for instance. So I wanted to draw out those those texts that he had written so that they would underpin this idea of displacement and bring it back then into the laps of, of people who have a have a more secure life, have a, a safer life. So there's four excerpts from the book and they they preface, I think, the each section of the film. Can we turn back uh, to the to the residents? Uh, I think it's Bujdor. Bujdor yeah. camp, and specifically to the women of the Western Sahara. Um, and, and I'm reminded that just last night we had uh, another event uh, framed around the the resilience and the, if you like, the tortured life of refugees. We showed the Senegalese film uh, Pirog and. Uh, although most of the men on this on the boat, this pirogue that was trying to sail from Senegal to Spain, were men, there was one woman uh, who had um, uh, secreted herself on board. But also in the beginning and the end of the film, the women are in, in a way instrumental. They're instrumental in coming up with the cash. They're, they're, they're instrumental in, in, in other ways as well. And um, in, in the text, as I say, that you write that it is the women who built the camp so how, I was wondering how they did this, and uh, you spoke earlier about their endurance of the heat and the ways in which they they invented these uh, ways of keeping cool. Can you speak a little bit more about how they built and maybe maintain or operate in the camps, and maybe elaborate a little bit more, if you wish, about the, the synergies that go on maybe between genders or other factors in the camps? Yeah, it's something I, I probably should mention straight away is that the text in the without film, the subtitles, are, are not my words. They're the words from the women in the camp. So they come from the interviews. Um, so the first line, it's the women who built these camps, actually comes from the female translator, uh, as we were in discussion with with the, with the other women. Um, I don't know exactly how they, they built the camp. I mean, it's incredible if you see what's available there I, I do know that you know for instance even making making bricks there is is a very very challenging uh, process there's the, there's no real material there and it's back breaking and and to do that in in such extreme environmental conditions is is unimaginable I think to most of us but I know that they did do it. It was it was over forty years ago. There were some men there. It wasn't completely female, but it was the majority of the the, the labourers would have been would have been female. I think some of the misconceptions about, especially in an in Islamic culture, is that you know the, there's these sort of big polarities between male and female roles. And and I'm not an expert on this in terms of the Saharawis, um, but what I do know is that. Prior to the mid 1800s in the Western Sahara, the there wasn't so so pronounced um, divisions between men and women because they were they were then more of a Bedouin um, uh, 
group of people and so everybody everybody did a shift pretty much and and because of that they they were and they still are quite resilient and tough people so the idea of of actually these male female divisions the perception of it they probably became a bit more pronounced after the spanish uh, came in and set up cities my experience of being in the camp was that it is there there are more females there there's more women and, and children there and the men are in the military i think because that's one f- main form of employment there so the men are often away so the camps are run or kept um by you know there's a there's a there's a strong sort of female role in in keeping the camps and keeping the home and the camp is the home thank you so very much for drawing attention to this often forgotten situation and uh we will on the website we will link to to background to images to the website uh i'm just reminded on the question of the building with the mud bricks when i you 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 told me about this site saharawi voice which i viewed uh yesterday and one of the prominent videos was about a flash flood which had just melted down those laboriously constructed brick buildings so even in the desert sometimes there are these flash floods so we will link to uh to try and overcome this inattention this neglect of of the people of western sahara on the website we'll link to your work to this site to this website saharawi voice and to and also gather some background information and of course thank you very much for talking to africa past and present thank you for having me to build on the interview with artist sam jury and elaborate for listeners more of the history and politics of the western sahara We called Richard Knight on Skype in New York City. Richard has been involved in Western Sahara solidarity since the 1970s, visiting the country and the camps in Western Algeria in 1979. He worked indefatigably with George Hauser in the American Committee on Africa for decades to draw attention to this often forgotten theater of national liberation. More recently, he has partnered with Michigan State University in developing the online and print African Activist Archive, which has a wealth of information on Western Sahara, including photographs that Richard took there. Richard Knight has published together with Chris Root and Peter Lim on anti-apartheid movement archives in the Radical History Review and written widely on other aspects of African solidarity. Welcome, Richard. Richard, could you please uh, begin by telling us some of the background to this chronically neglected situation in the Western Sahara uh, and the fate of the Sahrawi people? Western Sahara is illegally occupied by Morocco. The UN regards Western Sahara as a non-self-governing territory. Western Sahara was colonized by Spain in the late 19th century. but the people of the territory opposed colonization um morocco when morocco achieved independence um from france in 1956 its government um did not support the struggle in western sahara but instead laid claim to much of the territory organized opposition to spanish rule grew again um in the late 60s and in may 1973 polisario was formed 
and 10 days after its formation, it started an armed struggle against Spain for independence. By 1975, with its dictator Franco on its deathbed, Spain was ready to end its colonial rule. By this time, both Morocco and Mauritania were claiming the area. The United Nations sent an investigation mission that year to Western Sahara, which reported that strong popular support for Polisario and its policy of independence. And in late 75, the International Court of Justice, the World Court, found that Morocco and Mauritania claims were completely unjustified and had nothing, did not interfere with the, with the, the right of the people of Western Sahara to self-determination and independence as expressed in the 1960 UN Resolution 1514, the, known as a Declaration on the Granting of Independence to Colonial Countries and Peoples. In November 75, Morocco invaded Western Sahara, and uh, in the middle of that month, Spain, Mauritania, and Morocco signed the Madrid Agreement, dividing Western Sahara between the two African countries. Thousands of people uh, of Western Sahara fled the invasion and went to refugee camps in Algeria. Morocco, moved, had, uh, since that time, had moved large numbers of its citizens into Western Sahara. Polisario rejected the Spanish agreement um, and declared it illegal. On February 27, 1976, one day after the Spanish withdrew its administration, Polisario issued a proclamation declaring the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, the SADR, and continued its armed struggle um, for independence and self-determination. Just as an aside, a coup in Mauritania in 78 led that country to withdraw from the struggle, from its attempt to hold on to any Western power, and then it became just between uh, Polisario and Morocco. And in 1979, you had the opportunity to visit uh, the region. Uh, can you tell the listeners what you saw, who you met, what you learned there, and also the involvement of George Hauser. Could you perhaps speak to the role of the American Committee on Africa in this region and, and in this conflict? Well, in December 1977, I drafted a position paper that was adopted by the American Committee on Africa, also known as ACOA, board, which called for support for Polisario as the only legitimate representative of the of people of Western Sahara, and end to all military assistance to Morocco for the U.S. to recognize it, the SADR, and for the U.S. not to get involved in um, exploiting the, the resources of Western Sahara. This sort of grew out of George Hauser had somewhere met the Polisario representative to the U.S. at that time, who went by the name of Majid Abdullah, although that is not his real name, and I, I forget his real name, but he's still definitely an uh, important figure within Polisario. But as a result, he sent me to Western Sahara, and I went in February and March 1979, and I visited the refugee camps in Algeria, and then traveled inside with the Polisario fighters inside Western Sahara. Um, at the time I visited, Polisario estimated there were something like 110,000 refugees in uh, Algeria. So that's the number of people who, uh, who essentially fled um, Western Towers uh, uh, after the Moroccan invasion. Uh, I might add that George followed me uh, to Western Towers, being very intrigued by my report um, in May. During my time um, in Western Tower, I witnessed a battle. I also visited a number of sites of some major battles that had taken place in 77 and 78, um, and saw remains of a burnt-out Panhard tank, empty munitions cases with U.S. markings, and that kind of stuff. So this 
the U.S. was a major arms supplier to Western Sahara, uh, to, to Morocco. And uh, the State Department at the time said that uh, the military sales were for the legitimate, quote-unquote, defense needs of Morocco. But uh, we always claim that since Morocco did not have any legitimate defense needs in Western Sahara, the use of the weapons were illegal. But the U.S. sold things like aircraft, ammunition, helicopters, etc. What about the, the role of the UN then? Um, there's, uh, there, there were attempts to have a referendum. Could you just sketch the, the UN role and, the, and the, 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 the efforts around a referendum to give the people of uh, Western Sahara a, a choice, a, a voice? Well, you know, the issue of a referendum has been raised even by the UN as far back as the 1960s. But obviously... That didn't happen. The UN brokered a ceasefire between Morocco and Polisario in 1991, after all these years of war. The ceasefire has held since then, but the UN effort to, to organize a referendum on the territory's future has, has been resisted by Morocco. And they, you know, earlier this year, during a visit to the refugee camps, the UN Secretary General um, used the word occupation um, to describe Morocco's uh, mm -hmm. annexation of Western Sahara. Um, in 1975. Morocco responded by expelling the staff of the United Nations Mission for the Referendum in Western Sahara, which is one of their peacekeeping missions. And even though, unlike other UN peacekeeping missions around the world, the one for Western Sahara is not charged with monitoring human rights, thanks to the French apparently, um, which have, have blocked it in the Security Council. Morocco, often with the assistance of, of, of business international business, has, for the whole time of its occupation, exploited the resources of Western Sahara, including phosphate, more recently fish caught in the international territorial waters of Western Sahara, and um, has been exploring for oil. In 2002, the UN Legal Council, Hans Corell, said that exploitation of natural resources without respect to the interests and wishes of the people of Western Sahara would be a violation of international law. But and that's international law that relates to non-self-governing territories. That has not stopped companies. The U.S. company, Cosmos Energy, for example, has a license uh, to explore for oil in, in the offshore-occupied Western Sahara. If they actually got to exploitation of oil, that would be illegal. I should add that throughout the conflict, Polisario has had considerable African support. In July 1979, the Organization of African Unity, the OAU, adopted the position that self-determination had not taken place in Western Sahara. When in 1982, the OAU admitted the Polisario government, the SADR, Morocco withdrew from the organization. And the SADR is a member of the African Union, the successor to the OAU, and Morocco is the only African country that is not a member of the African. So I think this clearly is of all African countries, be it South Africa or whatever. And there have been some campaigns more broadly in, in Europe than there has been in the U.S. For instance, there's uh, the Western Tower Resource Watch, which uh, campaigns against the exploitation of the resources of Western Tower under Moroccan occupation. And there are a number of Western Tower support groups around the world. And what's the situation today... Uh, Richard, what uh, what about the international uh, solidarity campaigns, uh, particularly 
uh, in the global north for the Sahrawi people and for Western Sahara? And, and how are they dealing with Morocco's uh, continued intransigence? In terms of the U.S., the, the, there is very little movement. It's much more in, in other countries, in, especially in, in, in Europe. I mean, phosphate is a big issue because, in fact, Morocco, the, the, the phosphate from Western Sahara is an important percentage of, of total global, global production, um, and phosphate is used in things for agriculture. But it's kind of like, while no country recognizes, certainly no country in Europe, not the U.S., recognizes Western Sahara as part of Morocco, this has not prevented the, some of the, the, the governments of uh, the European Union or and the European Union in general to try and include Western Sahara in trade agreements. I would note that the U.S.-Moroccan trade agreement does, specifically does not include Western Sahara. So the U.S. government is good on that level. But, you know, none of the countries that are the permanent members of the Security Council, like the U.S., like France, like the U.K., are willing to pressure Morocco to actually allow the referendum to take place. As I noted, a number of the countries are allowing trade, including the fish from the Western Sahara waters. So there is very much a mixed bag in terms of international. Everybody recognizes that Morocco doesn't, that Western Sahara is not part of Morocco, but getting them to actually do something about it, you know, I mean, even if they found some oil, it wouldn't be like a country like Kuwait, all right, where, oh, the oil is important, we've got to do something, because uh, their amount of oil would not be that great. So I think that, uh, you know, the, the economic incentive, which often drives foreign policy, does not really exist in Western Africa. Okay, well, that's really a very good summary and, and charting of these uh, important trends. Thanks very much, Richard uh, Knight, for talking to Africa Past and Present, and it reminds us of the need for uh, committed uh, scholars of, of Africa and others to, to keep up to date on this question and to apply pressure for resolution of this very long-standing conflict that is often forgotten. Thanks, Richard. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.com at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.